0: this week on Writers Inc. And I wrote about mind control cults and they're fascinating. I mean, I love anything that has to do with the psychology of persuasion and behavioral manipulation and psyops. So I did a ton of reading about cults and then at a certain point I realized that to understand them better, I wanted to go kind of undercover into some cult meetings. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.B. Barker and Indie Powerhouse's Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where did they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories, all have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the best seller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writers Inc.
1: Zach, what's up with the great Southern Trend Kill man?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, it's cause uh, it's cause I tried to get JD to buy uh, Vinnie Vinny Paul's house this week. <laughs> yeah, so. I I
1: had to I had to ask you to tell that story. So Oh, his house is up for sale but it's not in the greatest of shape is, is my understanding. Is, is that is that the case? Yeah,
2: I just happened to come across <laughs> a thing that Vinnie Paul, the late drummer from Pantera, his house was for sale and of course I love Pantera I know you do too and so like yeah, JD's always talking about buying houses on here. And a few weeks ago, I tried to get him to buy an abandoned air force base for us to do a, uh, with like It was like, what was it, like 50 bedrooms, 26 bath or something. A mess I, I, hall.
3: Would, I would totally move into that place. I don't
2: or There's something crazy. I was like, man, we could totally have a post apocalyptic uh, retreat there. And then, um, and then, yeah, so I sent him this and apparently it send your wife down this rabbit hole. And I'm like, man, my tone really got lost in this email that I was totally joking. <laughs>
3: It does, doesn't work that way at my house. Like, I, I seriously want to buy a missile silo like those those are those are out there too and like you can buy them from the government for like next to nothing but you know you have to live in the middle of the desert in Arizona somewhere but like you could build like a cool house in a in a missile silo but yeah you sent that over and like you know I, I don't run the real estate portion of our little empire that's my wife so you know you never know so like I sent it over to her and like within like 10 minutes like she had a financial analysis done she, she like she knows she knows the rental market in in Arlington Texas like I don't even know where Arlington Texas is It's right um, outside but, Dallas it's yeah, like I, I it's
2: totally great grown up that's where the cowboys are and stuff so no, it's, it's a big I'm, area i like like i told you i used to i mean i'm basically from there so yeah, yeah. but i haven't lived there for years but uh yeah i just thought it was funny because like i love pantera and i was like that'd be a cool house to have i just wanted to go stay there for one night so ironically too, him and his brother are both buried in the same uh cemetery as all my family so it's kind of interesting too. So not not to make this depressing, but it's already depressing enough you didn't buy the freaking house. so
3: It, it needed too much work. And it like, was it, a piece of crap. On the uh, yeah. It
2: looked like, it, yeah, it, it was not a, not a good house. Well,
3: so. there was, there's a lot of, we, we actually might, to give the listeners a little understanding of what we did here. So my wife actually called our real estate agent who called the real estate agent who's actually got the listing um, and, and got the, the inside scoop on it. So apparently this guy was very fond of DIY type projects um, in, inside the house. So there's, there's a couple, like moving bookcases, blocking off rooms, um, a few walls that were removed that that probably shouldn't have been, a few new ones put in, like all, all totally unpermitted. Um, you know, so he's paying people through PayPal or whatever he was, he was doing. But the, the problem is when you try to buy a house like that, you know, you typically can't get a mortgage on it because it's, you know, a lot of this stuff hasn't passed code and when you put it up on the market, it has to pass code before you're allowed to buy it so that they have to bring in a, a contractor who has to bring it up to code and that, that's a huge nightmare. Um, yeah, so like ton, tons of red flags outside of the fact that nobody wants to go to Arlington, freaking Texas.
1: <laughs> well, I'm going to spin JD down a different rabbit hole because I was thinking like Pantera Museum. There you go. Okay, I, I'm Tourist still not attraction. going.
3: I'm still not going to Arlington, Texas for a Pantera Museum.
1: Listen, hey, you JD, won't. twenty
2: dollars a JD. Imagine. I mean, in, in all seriousness, I'd be surprised though if the rental, <laughs> like the short term rental market there, wasn't crazy because you could like sell that to Pantera fans and stuff. But also like. I mean that's a really actually a really populated area, and the the Cowboys football stadium there gets tons of huge events. Well, the, so it's actually I mean I, I think a lot of tourists actually go there, but
3: yeah, the, the other red flag that she came up with is it's in an HOA. Um, which means that they typically don't allow rentals, um, not, not overnight type wow. rentals. And, you know, most of our properties, we put them out there on VRBO and Airbnb. You know, they're, they're renting, you know, nightly or weekly, that kind of thing. Um, so at best, you could probably get away with somebody who's going to stay there for a month. But um, it, it's very difficult to do that in HOAs. So, so many red flags. Very cool pool. I like the pool. But um, you de- definitely not 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 going to be adding that to the, the Barker Rental Properties portfolio anytime soon.
2: Well, R I P, Benny. <laughs> Keep buddy. Out. Yeah. Well, next, just next you know,
1: time. Tune in next week uh, for the, our next episode of Real Estate Author Podcast. Uh, <laughs> now,
3: what's <laughs> it? What you guys are working on? Publishing, yeah. writing wise, what do you got going on, JD? Uh, well, first, of all, I got a bunch of emails about the, the best of, uh, book talk thing. Um, and, and the one email that kept coming in, like they didn't put the price out there, the guy who, who built our website. So at the moment, it is 49 bucks. They're, they're trying to keep it as cheap as they possibly can. Um, a lot of that is tied to the, the number of people on the mailing list, because that the list keeps getting bigger and bigger. And you know, that kind of ups the cost every time they send a message out. Uh, but right now, it's at I think 49 or $50. So they're gonna try and keep it keep it down there as much as they can. Um, I actually saw some financial news I just wanted to throw out there. Do you guys do you follow the Facebook earnings, or did you see any of the news on that I yesterday? Yeah, so Facebook got creamed in the market because their earnings came out pretty pretty low um, yeah. from what they were expecting, and and they basically blamed the the Apple iOS. Um, they blamed advertisers. Um, you know and, and that type of supply chain problems things like that um, but you know there, there's a lot of advertisers are pulling out um, just because the, the cost has gone up and they're just they're not seeing the the kind of returns they did because you can't target people the way that you were able to before um, so this is going to be very interesting to see how it all it shakes out um, and it, and it's not just a Facebook problem I mean Facebook you know because Apple did this like they're they basically their privacy rules are limiting what all these different companies can do it's just Facebook happens to be the largest one from an advertising standpoint um, but you know Instagram Twitter all anybody who's relying on that
2: data from from ios you know they're they're getting hurt right now well i'm not gonna i'm, I'm not gonna go down a rabbit hole here because i have a lot of opinions but i'm just gonna say i don't know if you saw the error part of the report too but and i actually said this in tasm today but facebook also reported their uh first ever decline in active users ever in their history so i also would say it's not just apple's fault but also i think people are getting smart and realizing um, the just how terrible those platforms are is <laughs> <Well, laughs> all is all I'm gonna say. That's my that's my I think that's a big part of it too. I, I, I think, think people are fed up with 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 all with all that.
3: Yeah, there's definitely a, a you know a backlash happening with people just taking a step back you know from social media in general. Like, you know, nobody needs to know what I ate for dinner you know last night. There, we nobody wants to see pictures of it up on Instagram. Um, you know, that kind of thing is like it, it's it's hit a peak and it's and it's going away. But I think what's really happening with Facebook to a large extent is the audience is just getting older. You know, a lot of people jumped on Facebook when it first came out around 2000. I think it was 2009 when it you know went out of the college market and went to the general public. Um, but it's more or less you know they they hit that a peak of of users and their their average user age is rising and rising, and, and younger people aren't going on Facebook. You know, when they when they joined social media for the first time, they're they're going on TikTok or they're going on Snapchat and probably ten other ones that we haven't heard of yet. Um, but Facebook isn't really on their radar. That's their mom and dad's platform. Um, so that's another big hurdle yeah. that face, Facebook is going to have to overcome. Um, you know, and and they could buy their way out of it. Honestly, I mean, they could continue to buy up some of these smaller companies, um, and and you know, like they they could easily buy up TikTok. And you you know, you'll hear about it like in the news, the financial news. But you know, from a branding standpoint, they'll probably distance Facebook from TikTok or whatever entity they buy as much as possible because they don't want to turn kids off. You know, for the same reason, if if kids realize that it's owned by Facebook, they see it as their parents' company. They don't want any part of it anymore. Um, you know, it's you know Instagram. You know, for the same reasons. Like right now, it's it's very separate as from an entity standpoint. They like to keep those those brands you know they want their their own identity. It's interesting to see all that kind of stuff going on, but it, there's definitely a backlash there, you know like I, I, I've been going out from my runs daily and like I leave my phone at home you know, and, and it's so refreshing to just like go somewhere and not have to worry about a text message coming in or an email or something, you know, just kind of relax and get out of the, you know, get out of that space for a little while, or even reading a book. Like I, you know, read tons of books on my Kindle, on my phone, or I have been. And, and lately I'm, I'm back to paper because it's just, it's so much more relaxing to hold a physical copy and, and, you know, not see messages popping in left and right. So we'll see. I think there's also this trend towards decentralization
1: and, uh, I'm Not going to steer us too close to Web three and NFTs and blockchain, but uh, I do think we're we're moving more we're moving away from centralized things just in general. So like, you, when Facebook in the mid two thousands popped up, it was centralized and everyone was there. And I think what's happening now is people are breaking off into these small pockets and these small online virtual communities that aren't run by a central platform or server. Uh, and so you know, I I, I think the the effectiveness of the facebook style platform is is going away i I just i don't see that trend reversing anytime soon
2: well yeah i mean but the the places that they're going is what could change it though too with the all all the metaverse stuff and all that i mean like that could be that could that could be the big turnaround for them with 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 all that stuff but yeah like you said that's going down a rabbit hole
3: (laughs) Well, just, just to wrap that up, I mean, they're basically trying to recreate what they've already done. So when Facebook came out, they were the only game in town, and everybody jumped on it, and then everybody stayed because people are lazy. You know, it's a lot easier to stay and continue using it at the, than it is to migrate and start using another platform and get your friends over there and that kind of thing. Um, so they're, you know, very early adopter in the, the whole metaverse, you know, and virtual reality, all those types of things, and, you know, if they play their cards right, that that's, you know, they might be right on track. That might be the next big thing, and, and they might be the forerunner, and, you know, before you know it, they're the only game in town again for another 10 or 15 years, but we'll have to wait and see.
1: Yep. What do you got what going on, Zach? What are you working on?
2: Punching away on my next Dead South book. Um, working on that. I just got the uh audiobook for book three approved, which is really good. So that's in uh that's in Q- QA right now with ACX, which is Thankfully, it become a much quicker process, um, you know, lately. So after, I don't know if you guys remember, it was like last year or the year before when it was just like it took forever to get a book approved. Now it happens within a couple of days. So just uh, waiting for that to come through. And, uh, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of the big thing that I'm I've been working on. So nice. I spent some
1: time this week. Uh, reformatting three-story method, uh, took the source files from Zach who had formatted it in Vellum and uh, converted everything over into Atticus because uh, moving forward I'm going to be managing that. And, uh, and also getting ready because I got, um, there was going to be one new three-story method book coming out um, soon. It's not going to be two. Uh, our, our mutual friend JP, everyone take a shot now if you hear JP's name mentioned on a podcast. Uh, but JP finished working on an early draft of a, what we're calling like a masterwork analysis using three-story methods. So I'll talk more about that in, in the coming weeks and months, but uh, I got that and I started uh, reviewing that and we're working on that. So uh, yeah, kind of kind of doing a little bit of the more admin sort or the grunt work that uh, comes along with being an independent publisher, but um, it's all good, you know it's, it's moving the, moving the ball forward. Cool. Uh, So before we get into our interview this week, let's take care of some business. We want to always uh, thank our wonderful sponsors over there at Kobo Writing Life. If you are publishing a book wide, then uh, Kobo Writing Life is a must because you can uh, set your own price, you keep all your rights, you can publish to many, many different countries, and you do all that without making any exclusive agreements. So if you want to publish your next book on... Uh, Kobo Writing Life, just go to KoboWritingLife.com We also want to give a shout out to our wonderful patrons over at Patreon.com slash podcast. Uh, if you would like to be part of our monthly Q&A episodes and submit questions that we will answer on the air uh, please sign up and we'd be happy to have you there Alright,
3: JD, who is on for this week? We've got Greg Hurwitz. Um, so I, I kind of stumbled into this guy probably the same way a lot of other people did. I, I, I ran out of Jack Reacher books to read. Um, and you know when you're used to reading you know books that have a certain level of action in them, it's very difficult to kind of take a step back and go to something a little bit slower. And I, I, I got, I think it was a book bub, honestly, for, for his first in series, for the, the Orphan X series. Um, and I, I read that in like probably three or four hours. Like I literally devoured it um, for, for two reasons. I mean, the, the action in the writing is, is, is so strong. Um, but he's a very skilled writer, you know, just in general. His physical descriptions, his characters, everything about it, just, yeah, you know, it screams, you know, like, as from, and from an author standpoint, like, I literally learned stuff while I was reading his book, and like, I really try to seek those types of things out, um, and I, I burned through every one of his, his Orphan X books, and I went back through his, you know, the first couple that he wrote before that, um, so now I'm done. I, I read the, his latest, it's called Dark Horse, which releases uh, February 8th, um, and I'm done with that one, too, so great, get off your butt, write in Another book really quick because I need some more material to read. Um, but here he is, Greg Hurwitz. As president or co-president of the ITW, do you get
0: to boss J.D. Barker around? I don't get, no <laughs> one bossed J.D. Barker around. Nope. Uh-uh. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Let's just say there's a lot of bodies buried in crawl spaces of people who've tried before me. <laughs>
1: oh man i thought you were gonna go the complete other direction i was totally gonna get one in on him but uh
0: man he's got you frightened he got something on you he's he's just a terrifying individual (laughs) oh well hey man i'm uh i'm thrilled
1: to have you on you you have a new orphan x book out called dark horse uh tell everyone about evan and and um for those who might not be familiar with the series um give us the elevator pitch
0: well, Evan was taken out of a foster home at the age of 12. And he was, he was trained up to be an assassin, you know, by a deep black government program who wanted to have expendable humans basically to use his weapons in areas where they're not allowed to go. And one of the things that was different, that's that's different about the series is that his handler became like a father figure to him. His name is Jack Johns. And one thing that Jack Johns tells him is the hard part isn't making you a killer. The hard part is keeping you human. And so he was trained under the 10 assassins commandments that are a big part of the book. He was trained in all of this, but that was almost like an Achilles heel. The fact that he had this ray of humanity rather than the fact that he was turned into a sort of ideological true believer, let's say. And so at a certain point, the moral conflict with the program gets too much. He leaves, he goes off the radar, he's being pursued by the government. And now he, um, exists in sort of out in the ether and there's a 1-800 number, it's one 855 nowhere that you can call. And in fact, he will answer and literally, um, and when people call they're in, they're in sort of, uh, desperate circumstances, they need help. There's nobody who could possibly help them. There's no legitimate means. And so he's almost like a pro bono assassin. He asks for, you know, no money, no credit, no permission. And he goes about and sets sets the circumstances right and does whatever he has to do and in dark horse the new one he gets he finally gets a phone call from somebody on the other end of the line that is somebody who under other circumstances he would likely execute it's he's a, he calls himself an unconventional businessman but he's really like a cartel guy who deals in the drug trade and his um his daughter his teenage daughter has been kidnapped by a brutal cartel member and secreted across the border from south texas in Mexico and Evan has to decide whether the man on the other end of the phone is someone he should kill or someone who he should help. And so it poses a question that Evan's been asking his own self for a long time, which is, can you save a bad man? Can a bad man be saved?
1: Love it. Uh, Dark Horse was a thrill ride. I, I don't want to spoil anything, but I, it's funny, you mentioned the uh, the kidnapping because I wanted to ask you about that uh, scene in particular. Uh, mm-hmm. I had really mixed emotions and, and twisted feelings reading that because uh, uh knowing that this was sort of like a a drug kingpin or, or uh you know an illicit uh a businessman so from a storytelling standpoint why did you choose that particular scene to give Evan this sort of moral conundrum that he has to face?
0: The scene of the kidnapping meaning right. why was that the spark point? Right, like why was that the client, the first client okay the further that I get along in my career and this, you know, it started early, but I think I keep moving more and more towards not writing heroes or villains, good guys or bad guys, but protagonists and antagonists. And so the more complicated the people are who I can pit Evan against, the more complexities they bring out in him. And so Aragon Urea, who is the, this, this guy whose daughter is killed. He's, it's, he's, he's complicated. He's, he, he has dealt in illegal drugs. He has kind of an extrajudicial international, you know, incredibly lucrative drug trade. But, you know, he and his, his aunt who raised him, who goes by the name Latia, makes an argument that what he does, he's also a beloved patron to the local community, he pays for schools and roads and farming equipment, and he provides rough justice to maintain, you know, sort of civility and prosperity in his community. And he and his aunt make an argument essentially that what he does in some ways is no different than what the big biopharmaceutical companies do. I mean, the only difference is he gives more back to the community around him. And so he's very, he's very complicated in his position that he wields power, but a lot of people who wield power um, also can take on other responsibilities. And so he's sort of complicated at the space between Evan and then the man who stole his daughter goes by the name El Moreno, the dark man. And um, and he's he's pretty psychopathic and horrific. But even he has a perspective and a worldview of why he does the things he does and why he feels moved to do them. And so I'm always trying to write into those complexities and to try and draw out the nuance. You know, I used to think that if I made a bad guy really bad, it could make my good guy seem really good. And in fact, the opposite is true in a lot of ways, right? Where where we connect most to characters when they engage in circumstances that are complicated, when there's these sort of moral conundrums with no clear approach, and they have to figure out how to navigate their way through them. And it always involves some some breaking up or cracking of their perception of the world. You know, I think somebody who just excels at this is uh, Dennis Lehane. You know, he's someone I've been reading forever. I'm sure you have too. Um, And he's just, you know, he sets a wonderful... Um, I don't want to say template because that's reductive. You know, he writes, he writes like beautifully informed stories that always are dealing with these shades of gray and, you know, no stock characters, no straw men or women.
1: I totally agree. Uh, you know, I, uh, I don't know if you're a fan of Ozark, or if you've been watching that series at all. Um, but I, I mean, this is a compliment to you. You're, you're, um, Orphan X series has a very Ozark feel to it in that you're not really sure who the good guys and the bad guys are. And and I find that endlessly fascinating. Um, mm. and, and I think it's a, it's a great way to pull, pull readers into the world. Um, so um, yeah, g- good job, man. That was great.
0: Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you.
1: I know that you do uh, or have done training uh, for books, which sounds kind of odd, but did you do any training for Dark Horse?
0: Well, for the Orphan X series in particular, you know, I did, some mixed martial arts training for a bunch of months. And, you know, by that, I don't mean to imply I got any good at it because it <laughs> sounds, sounds very impressive. But I mean, I mostly was getting my reduced to the training mat repetitively. Um, but I always feel like if I put myself into those shoes, um, you know, I can write the scenes and the situations with a kind of telling detail that will differentiate it from cliches that we're always trying to dodge as writers, right? Like, you know, and then he saw black. And so having been in a chokehold and feeling, watching my vision start to go and knowing the specific different kind of pain that is face pain from body pain and all these things it it gives me more tools to be able to give the reader a front row seat to the action. And I, you know, I've shot all the guns that Evans used from Benelli combat shotguns to custom 1911s. Um, With Dark Horse, a lot of it was really um, intricate. I was very interested in the ways that a, like what's the 2.0 version of a cartel, right? Like what's Netflix to blockbuster basically. Um, And so I did a lot of research into how um criminality and the drug trades can move through international borders and move around regulations and that was really interesting to delve into it's almost like a different you know there's there's a good number of of it's really interesting to find those questions about what exists on the threshold of what is considered um legal what's acceptable business practice right because plenty of that's acceptable business practice is pretty pretty goddamn morally unacceptable in a lot of ways so that was really fun, and then you know, of course, a lot of the, the research was into Mexico and cartels, some of which was was horrifying. You know, watching footage of some of the stuff that's committed. Um, I did have the benefit of having you know one of our great Mexican American writers, Luis Uria, who is a friend of mine. He was Pulitzer nominated for Devil's Highway. Um, just you know, preternaturally talented. And so he was a, he was a point of contact for, he knows more about the border than anyone I know, you know, he also happens to be a creative genius. And so it was really beneficial to be able to call him, run stuff off him. He served as a reader for me to make sure I didn't, you know, step on my own foot. Um, and so that was, that was a compelling part of the process. And he's, um, he's spectacular, big, big open heart and spirit as well. Uh, so that was, that was a pretty joyful part of the process. Yeah were you choked out completely? I have been close to. I tapped out before. <laughs>
1: what was what was the moment? Tell me about the moment where where you tapped out. What were you experiencing?
0: Mm. Well, what's weird is like you get, you know, your your vision speckles, there's a kind of pain. The thing that's that's hard to convey in a chokehold, like a proper mixed martial arts chokehold around the neck. I'm saying, you know, obviously it's a chokehold, but, um, cause leg brace, like there's leg brace and, and arm brace slash break holds that are, that are completely awful in their own idiosyncratic ways. But there's this unbelievable feeling of claustrophobia that's hard to describe. Cause I'm used to claustrophobia. If you can't use your arms, like, you know, if somebody, you know, traps you in a sleeping bag or that notion of it, but when it's your head and your neck, and somebody is is choking you properly, it's just a feeling of such total overwhelm. Like you, it's almost like you've lost access to your to your head. It's in, it, your head is in possession of somebody else, and your body is dangling and irrelevant. Wow, <laughs> I, I
1: I can't say I've ever been choked out. So I was just personally curious about what, what that experience was like. Doesn't sound pleasant. Yeah, I, I don't recommend it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, let me ask you about something other than uh, chokeholds then. Um, if you are still trapped in a cult, raise your right hand and I'll send help. That's, that's the signal. You're good. Okay, good. So I want to ask you, uh, mind control cults, you were able to escape them. Tell me about that.
0: Well, that that's a slightly more, uh, over-glorified version because I was never fully ensconced in one. Okay. But my, I think my sixth book maybe was called uh, The Program. It was my second in the Jim Rackley series. And I wrote about mind control cults and they're fascinating. I mean, I love anything that has to do with the psychology of persuasion and behavioral manipulation and psyops. So I did a ton of reading about cults. And then at a certain point, I realized that to understand them better, I wanted to go kind of undercover into some cult meetings, you know, like eight hour lock-in seminars at a Radisson by the airport, that kind of stuff. And just sort of watch what was happening and experience it for myself. I will say it's the only time that I had to write my research down and make it less accurate because had I written it as it was, I don't think I would have gotten through a suspension of disbelief for the readers, the extent to which people are that readily um, snowed and manipulated. Wow. So, in, in how does what does the
1: research look like in a situation like that? Are you mentally cataloging things? Are you going back at night and writing things down? How are you sort of keeping your pulse on what's happening for, for later when you're drafting?
0: Well, a lot of it's what I experience. So, like, they sit you in a big U shaped you know, arena in a big ballroom, and then they say, everybody who's ready for change, stand up. So it's these subtle pressures. And like, unless you've been there and you're sitting there and every single person is standing but you, you're unaware of the kind of social pressure that's exerted. And they choose healthy people. You want healthy people with healthy instincts. It's why like magicians on stage won't choose somebody who looks sketchy. Like you don't want a delusional schizophrenic who keys to unusual things because they know things that we don't. You want somebody who responds predictably and appropriately in social situations. So it's a misnomer that cults reach out for people who are like broken and damaged. They want healthy people in times of transition. So where do they recruit? Airports, college campuses, right? Outside addiction groups. Um, And so they're, they're wanting to catch people who are, who are, you know, normal people, whatever the hell that means in transitional times. And so going to that and experiencing that pressure firsthand is interesting. I mean, you've probably been there at like some Broadway show, It's relatively shitty and it ends in all the out of town tourists like like us, but, you know, stand up and they're applauding and you don't really want to give a standing ovation because it wasn't that good. But like, who wants to be the asshole who's sitting there like, no, I don't deem this worthy of me standing up and clapping and I'll make a statement. I mean, so there's all these ways that we accommodate to social pressures around us, right? So that was one thing. And the other thing was, I was very interested in seeing the cult order because, one of the things they have to do early on is one of the ways you can break through uh, mind control is through um, a consistent ethical minority position that's consistently held towards honesty. The movie 12 Angry Men illustrates that, how to affect group change dynamics effectively, right? He's like honest, you're earnest, you're consistent. And so if you start to do that in a cult setting with other people, they don't want you to infect the others. So they separate out what they call the goats from the sheep. And so I was tapping, asking questions that weren't getting good answers. And I was tapping and I wanted to tap enough to keep getting the next layer of response, but not so much that I would be removed from you know, the group as a bad influence. And so that was kind of the tightrope I was walking.
1: Oh, it's fascinating stuff. I mean, you, uh, you're doing physical training and weapons training. You're immersing yourself into these environments that are eventually going to be in your story. So how does that translate into your writing process? What happens when you now sit down to draft the story?
0: Well, in a way it's like, you know, somebody, I do some screenwriting also. And somebody said at one point that when you adapt a novel, you read it twice and then you put it in a drawer and write the screenplay you know, it's like, don't tell novelist me that that's what you should do. And obviously you mark it up and it's an overstatement, but the point of it holds is that like when you create, you need to, you need to have the creative process and the story be the driver. So I often come in with, I'm doing this right now. I'm at this point in in the manuscript I'm working on now that I'm at the, like kind of the big researchy chapter. And I don't want to have I don't want it to read like a Intel dump, right? You don't want to just have it all come out. So how do you parse it? How do you make it come out naturally or organically in the story? Um, there's a line, I think Laura Littman said once, I don't know if she's quoting somebody else, there was a remark about a writer where they said, your research slip is showing. <laughs> it's like, you don't want to be so excited by the research that you're beating the reader over the head, right? You need You need to know the whole iceberg, but the tip of the iceberg is what kind of emerges up into the narrative. And so a lot of the research is to gather all of it to then reach for it where it's appropriate and to filter it in where it accommodates the story and not where you're too reliant on it. And so some of this is about, you know, um, almost like procedural memory. Procedural memory is like riding a bike, right? It's not... You file it in your body, and sometimes, like with research, I increasingly think of it that way. Like, go to immerse myself in something. Of course, I have notes and other stuff, but I'm, I more want to know like how the research kind of lives with me and my understanding of of what's interesting about a topic, what's interesting about a person. You know, when we're writing characters, we want to kind of pull on their their masks and see the world through their eye holes and describe it that way. And that's not always from compiling a whole bunch of facts, right? That that like the the whole has to be more than the sum of the parts. And that's got to come from some, you know, the internal story driving part of our writing. And are you writing from an outline? Kind of. I, I have the, what I call a rolling outline. I have two, I have a big, big old monitor right here that I'm talking to you on. I have another monitor to the side And I have just tons of notes. They're basically bullet points. You know, usually it's around 20 to 25 pages before I start of just bullet points loosely grouped into scenes, characters, whatever, but it's adaptable. It moves fluidly. And so as I research, as I start to write the book, usually it grows initially because I'm writing chapter three, four, new ideas. Let me drop a handkerchief here. Let me put something in the middle. I'll pay it off at the end constantly doing it all of a sudden a whole tranche of the of the outline i'm like ah that's that doesn't fit in this book maybe that goes in another book so it's kind of this living and breathing thing and why i call it a rolling outline is i sort of that's pretend that's like the clay and i just shape up the chapters closer to the top are more clear and then it kind of deteriorates into more haziness but i know where i have like handholds later, big, you know, big chunky scene in the somewhere towards the end of the second act, right? I know where I'm going to land. Here's a flurry of scenes in the third act, you know, towards the end. And so it's a way that I keep engaged. And basically through the process, you know, first the outline kind of grows and then it starts to shrink and it gets absorbed into the manuscript here. And at the end of it, I have a 400 page manuscript here, give or take, and then this document's empty. I love that. It's So
1: are you using two separate monitors then, one for the, the, the dump file and the other that you're writing in? That's right. Love that. I love that. And, and I, it's a great visual. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great visual too in that you're sort of starting heavy on one side and, and all the energy is sort of transferring to the other side during the course of the process.
0: But I keep them both alive, you mm. know, because if I do a whole outline, you know, I don't know what I, you know, Joan Didion said, you know, I write to know what I think. such a great line. Like when I read that, I was like, oh, there's so many things I'm kind of working out and considering. And I want to have the room to breathe when I'm writing. I want to have the room for, and I'm not talking about, you know, sort of precious, you know, the muse beckons and I follow it blindly, but you know, when you're in the flow, it's like with, with, with sports, with any activity, like there's sometimes, you know, that you're in a certain flow, you're in a certain state and it's not your, you know, it's why I think the metaphors you know when jordan's playing well people are like he's out of his mind it's like why do we say that right you're you're occupying a different space and that's the goal i think is to try to occupy that space when you're working almost more than just what are the words but if you're if you're if you're in that place then what comes out is more organic it's it's more real and i want to give that room to be more real and so that means there's going to be twists and turns and things that have to change in the outline you know if i have a big outline and i'm only following it for me, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's dead it's already ossified, right? It's already locked. And then I'm kind of filling it in and it doesn't feel as alive. I don't feel as engaged with the place that I want to be in. Um, and so if I'm not as engaged that way, when I'm writing it, I don't think readers are when they're reading it. And then again, I always want to clarify you know, some people and some of my closest friends and most talented colleagues write from a very firm outline because that's what, that's where their creative process, you know, kind of dumps a lot of that early and then they they can write from a more fixed outline and that feels liberating for them. So it's not like I'm arguing that that one approach is better or worse for younger writers who are there because everyone's process is their, is their own and, you know, caveat, 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 right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And you get into trouble when you start um, making those blanket statements uh, that, you know, everyone should be doing this or should be doing that because, like you said, it clearly doesn't work for everybody. Right. Yeah. Like nor,
0: yeah nor should it. You know? Right. If, right. If writing, you know, when people talk about writers having a voice, it means they're connected with something that's unique to them. So nobody, you know, we, you can get tips, you can pick them up and try them on and alter them and put them down. You know, and I played with that a lot. I mean my first two books I wrote from no outline at all. I just sat down and wrote. And I mean I was, I was quite young um, and and foolish er. Um, but <laughs> you know I got to the end and I had basically a mess with some cool stuff in it. but I had to take them apart completely like an engine block, right, and then rebuild it. And it wasn't really till my third book that i that I that my rough draft sort of resembled the shape of a finished novel in a way that was, halfway good. I mean, I wrote 16 drafts in my first novel, you know? Ooh, wow. And so, and then I started to kind of outline more and more and more and got to, I want to say the third Tim Rackley book I had completely outlined, like an 83 page outline, maybe my seventh or eighth book. And I realized in that process, it was very tight and the book was very tight, but I, I realized I was feeling constrained and I had to kind of break it apart. And when I wrote the crime writer was my eighth book in some regards my breakout book in a lot of ways, certainly internationally, I threw all that away and I just wrote from no outline at all. And then I kind of settled on this rolling outline. And so, you know, even with my own process, like, you know, cause I've been doing this a long time now um, I'd like to think of myself as, as not too aged. Um, so, <laughs> You know, how, how sorry I'm after playing soccer tells a different story, but, you know, I started really young. I started my first book when I was 19. So it's a lot of years for me where in some ways, as I'm writing, I hold a notion of structure and pacing almost, it's not on the surface. It's not, it's not something that's in my prefrontal cortex when I'm writing. It's just sort of how how I'm it's like software that's running in the background almost now, you know. And so, so I I can have a little bit more freedom, I think, in how I integrate it. And of course, the moment I've said that, it's all gonna go to hell in the next one and it's not <laughs> gonna work. And because, you know, every every book presents new opportunities for disaster as, as you know, well, so, you know, I'm not implying it's anything that's fixed, but for right now, that's how I'm chugging along.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and you have been very successful and at this a long time. When, when was the moment that you not necessarily from, from say a commercial perspective, but you internally knew like you could make a go at this, like this could be something that you could do for a living.
0: Well, I was, you know, like I said, I was young and I had some of that arrogance of youth, you know, and of course that's not applied to all youth, but it applied to a cross-section of youth that I was one. And I kind of thought, look, if I write a good book, right, why shouldn't I sell it? And thank God for that. Like if I was aware of how hard it would be. And I, look, I was very fortunate. I mean, I sold my first book. It was preempted by Simon & Schuster. Um, It was a nice deal. And I immediately... Broke that into how many months, like money for me was only gas in the tank of my car. I was like, how many months can I rise? It's all I cared about. I mean, you know, when I was in college, my senior year, a lot of my friends were going off to in an investment banking and doctors and lawyers and making all this money. And I literally said, like, if somebody would pay my bare expenses that I could live in a studio, I would like sign on the dotted line and just do like, it's all I wanted to do. And none of my drive not none of my drive. Cause of course you always fantasize like who doesn't want to be John Gresham. Right. But, but my primary drive was to be able to do the actual writing. It wasn't to be a writer. It was to want to write. So when I did my first deal, I just broke it up and was like, here's how much runway I have. Right. Here's how many months now I've bought myself. And I went out and, you know, like I bought a car that, that, you know, could go to 300,000 miles, you know, like a, like a a little Acura Integra, because if I didn't have another deal, I could drive it for, you know, 15 years. And it was all about getting myself the time and the freedom to continue to write. It's all I cared about. Um, And then, you know, my second book, we had, I think, 36 rejections. It took me two and a half years to sell it. After the first book, I was like, this is a breeze. I must be so talented. The world must recognize my genius. And was like, no, you know, I think I had I certainly had some talent. I definitely worked hard, but, you know, a lot of it is, is luck and help from people and and being prepared for the luck when it happens. And I was hardworking and diligent. And, um, but the second book, nobody wanted, I think we, we finally sold it to like the last imprint that was a brand new imprint, like of anywhere. And then I had, and then I bought myself more time. Um, and so it was a process, you know, but I always was in, in, in fear of losing the eight to 10 hours in a day that I wanted to spend writing. That's, you know, and so that's what, that was one of the animating parts of it was sort of uh financial anxiety.
1: Yeah. It's so relatable. This idea of buying yourself time, you know, like you, you do what you can, whether that's earning or saving to, to buy yourself that ramp, like that on ramp that that you hope it leads to. So that's a really relatable story. Thanks for sharing that. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's take it, let, let's wrap up by taking it all the way in the other direction, which is uh, you, you are a veteran of the industry. And like all of us, you've been observing some pretty radical changes in everything over the past couple of years. Uh, what sort of changes do you see on the horizon for writing and publishing whether that's a year out 5 years out like what what are you seeing o- out there on the horizon
0: Well you know of course ebooks are ascendant you know um and that's great and the biggest area of growth that i see are audiobooks um they're just exploding and it makes a lot of sense you know people have been listening to stories a lot longer than we've been reading them you know, and so especially with people's schedules and driving and commuting and jogging in the gym and ear pods and and I happen to have a, a spectacular audio book reader, Scott Brick, um, who's also become a very good friend. He's the voice of Evan Smoke. So if you if anyone wants to call the one eight five five to nowhere number, that's who's gonna pick up.
1: Brick is amazing. Um, he's so good.
0: He's so good. And it's so hard to read dramatically and with emotion and not feel theatrical. I mean, he's just he's just a a huge piece of talent. I'm very grateful to have him. But, you know, for me, the bottom line is like, at the end of the day, the technologies will change. Fundamentally, I'm not a, you know, engineer, I'm a storyteller. And so everything comes down to the same thing in a way, like the unsureness, of course, is always threatening, but we have to remember that, that, you know, the unknown holds equal parts Opportunity as it does threat. You know, so as all these bookstores are going out of business, it seemed awful, right? Like we lost all these independents, and then we lost borders, and then Barnes and Noble started to downsize. And it's but there's also opportunity, right? In in different kinds of ebooks and ebook exposure and different ways to market and advertise. It's certainly in audiobooks. And so at the end of the day, you know, as much as we try to adapt to that, and look, I'm a commercial writer, I like selling books. I like having more readers. I, I like making money. Like all those things are, are fine, but they can't be my focus. The focus has to be, it still is on the story. And then it's it's just trying to be savvy and having good people around you to anticipate that. And at the end of the day, you know, I am a purveyor of stories. I don't care if people, you know, snort them or shoot them or read them. I don't care which, which format they prefer to intake them. And that's what our strength is. It's important as writers to remember that, right? Our strength, our calling, our superpower is the ability to think up and tell stories. It's not necessarily to be a marketing guru, right? Or an expert in, you know, figuring out exactly what where the market's going to be in 10 months to write to that and all those other complexities. And so every time I've gotten too hang- too tangled up in like looking at the market, worrying about something else, right? Because we we all have those sort of detours. Is this going to work? Is it not going to work? What's happening? Every time the solution is to sort of shut off from that and go back to myself and go back to the desk and go back to the blinking cursor on the white page and get back to the thing that's the thing that that I'm supposed to do, the thing that I feel like I was meant to do and always wanted to do. And that's where all the changes have come. Every time I feel like my career has, has hit a patch that needs reassessment, The way I've rejuvenated it or taken a different turn, I mean, you know, comics, TV features, and novels right on every front is to sort of go off and go back to the well and then arrive with something better. It's not like I'm going out to pitch more aggressively and effectively, and that's gonna solve the problem with screenwriting. It's to go write a a really, as good a spec script as I can, and then the interest comes, comes in and is drawn inward.
1: Well, wow, what a fascinating guy! Uh, I I, I could have talked to him for hours. Zach, I want to I want to start with you because I know you're really into mind control.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I was just disappointed you couldn't get a JD insult out of him there at the beginning. That I tried, I tried. I know you did. No, you did. You really, really tried. But um, no, it was there was a lot of great stuff here. I mean, I think the I think the first thing that really stuck out to me that I wanted to talk to you guys about was training to write a book. Like I thought I thought that was awesome. Uh, you know talk t- you know him talking about doing MMA and you know shooting you know all the guns and stuff that his characters use in the books like I think that's t- type of stuff if you can do that it's so valuable. The gun thing is something that I've actually been wanting to do for a while uh, is to actually go out and like uh, go to a firing range and like fire an assortment of weapons just to see. Well, it's like, cause I feel like it would make me a better writer. You know, when he's talking about getting choked out and all that stuff, like, <laughs> I mean, some people might think that's kind of extreme, but I mean, you're gonna like, that's the type of stuff that is, uh, you know, will get you called out by readers and stuff. if You mess that up. I mean, Jay, remember the time when you and I went all around new Orleans looking for a vampire to bite us when we were at <laughs> final awakening, you know, so it was hard awesome. work. But, uh, but yeah, I just, I thought, I thought that that was, that really stuck out to me and that's some awesome dedication.
3: Yeah, you know, honestly, that gets back to what I mentioned at the beginning of all this. You know, like I first opened one of his books just as a reader, as a fan of that type of uh, novel. I got 20 or 30 pages in, and before I knew it, I was pulling out my notepad as a writer, going, I, I can't believe he just did this and he did it so well. Like, I needed to t- start taking notes as to how he's explaining that. And, like, th- this really, you know, this explains why, you know, like the the detail in in the fight scenes and like everything in that in in his novels is so realistic, and it's because he's actually going out there and and trying these things, and he's you know very familiar with the process. Yeah, you know, another example of that is David Morrell. Like a lot of people don't realize this, but he lived in the woods for I think it was a month, a thirty day program, um, before he wrote Rambo, um, and you know it comes across in the book. You know, and I'm not saying everybody has to do this, but if you do, you know, it it, it works. Um, One of the other things that that, uh, Greg is just really good at is something that Lee Child preaches all the time and it's, you know, write the slow stuff fast and write the fast stuff slow. Um, Meaning if you come to a scene that's, you know, kind of, you know, slow scene in the book, get through it quick, right, you know, knock it out in a sentence or two. Um, But like a fight scene or something with a lot of action, you know, you can really dig into that. And with Greg, you know, like the detail that he has there is just, it's phenomenal.
2: Yeah, that was, that was great. And similar to that, and I know Jay and I have had a lot of conversations about this, and, and especially in our uh, events and stuff, but I, I love when he talked about info dumping, you know, about all the research you do. And uh, I remember, uh, I don't remember if it was here on Writers Inc. or another interview I heard, but I remember Andy Weir talking about this and how he had made, this, made his own app to help him, like, calculate all these physics and stuff for – the Martian and, and all this stuff. And he, he, he sat and did this whole math equation that took him like a long time to do. And it amounted to one sentence in his book. And he was like, no one is ever going to know how much work it took. And I want them to know, but you, but he was like, but I had to resist that because the reader doesn't care about that, you know? And, and, and he, and Greg talked about it here about how he, all the research he does, and it, it's a lot of writers. They want to basically show off all that research in one spot, but no, you got to pick your places um, to to where to put that in and what information. Like, not everything you research is gonna is gonna get into the book, and but for you as the author, it's stuff that you need to know, and then pick your place of when you need to give the reader that information, and also how you do it. You know, whether that's like through dialogue with another character or whatever, and not just some like passive info dump in exposition.
3: Yeah, just to to build on that, and you're you're exactly right with the last thing you just said, one of the things that Patterson drills into my head is, is stay in scene so if, if I have to communicate any bit of information, it doesn't matter what it is, it could be the color of a car, I, I can't just include that as you know, as, you know, know, as the narrator type comment or something it, you know, it can't be an info type, type thing it has to come from a character, a character has to discover the color of that car and communicate it, and every single piece of information like that's how it has to be communicated and if I do it in any other way, it gets redlined, it gets cut from the book, and I have to go back and try and figure out a way to, to make it happen um, it's a pain in the butt, it's difficult to train yourself to do that, but once you get good at it, it it reads so much better. Um so I, I, I encourage everybody to try that. Um one of the other things that Greg brought up is, is his uh, system for writing, and Jay kind of touched on it too. And I, I really like that. Um, you know, he's got the book on one screen, he's got his outline on the other. And the outline is fluid. Um, it's very similar to where I, I'm kind of at right now. I, I use you know Simple Note, which we've talked about before. So I create my you know my rough outline in Simple Note, and I've got that you know just like he does on a separate monitor. And I just as I write a scene, you know, I I delete it from that outline, and it, you know becomes part of the book. Um, you know, I shuffle things around as I go. So it sounds like he's doing something very similar to that, um, and it's like a very good middle ground between, you know, that full, you know, 90 page outline that some other people do, or, you know, strictly pantsing, you know, if he looks up at that monitor, he knows where he's going for the next couple of scenes. And, you know, for the most part, that's usually, you know, where a lot of authors need to be, as long as you know what comes, you know, in the immediate future, you know, you're, you're golden.
2: Yeah, I love that. I always love hearing, you know, uh, different writers talk about their process. And one thing that was said, I think Jay was actually the one that said it, but there's no... You can't make blanket statements about process because everybody is just everybody's different everybody has their own process you know even when we were talking last week about uh, dean koontz and you know, not that his editing process doesn't work for everybody you know just like uh you know your outline process whether you have one or not or you just use bullet points like that's gonna be different for everybody the thing is is just to try different things and find what works for you. And if something's not working, be able to recognize that and address it. Um, and but I, but yeah, I thought I thought his his method was really interesting and really good. Yeah, I mean,
1: I would I would even say I would go so far as to say for a lot of authors, their own method changes from book to book.
2: Yeah, mind does. <laughs> uh, like, yeah. I I don't write
1: this. I don't write the same way every. I mean, I, there there are certain things I do, but it's not it's not the, it's a different every project's different uh, yep. and i think that's good i think that's kind of a growth mindset that you're learning and, and incorporating and adapting things into your process that you didn't know about before
3: yeah i mean it's always good just to try new things i mean you're going to it's going to change the way that you write you know either for the better or for the worse but it's it's good to, to try it you know even something that we talked about you know handwriting a manuscript you know, or, or writing it on a typewriter or dictating it, like any any one of these things is going to give you a slightly different voice. Um, you know, and you may discover that you absolutely hate it. You may discover that you love it. Uh, but that's one of the reasons why we try to pull that kind of information out of some of these guys, because you know, other people may not have considered you know what what Greg is doing. And you know, at least now it's out there. You can give it a shot, see if it works for you. If not, move on. Move on to try something else.
2: And there was there was actually something uh, I was going to bring up that's like loosely related. To this it's actually from James Clear's email today. Uh, where he's in his three ideas for me section. It says, if you added up all the time wasted searching for shortcuts and trying to cheat the process, the hard work could have already been done by now. And what I mean by that, obviously related to this is so many writers are always like looking for that hack in their process and looking for the perfect process and stuff. Just sit down do the work. Like, you know, and, and, and you'll figure out your process as you go. And like Jay says, it's going to change. I'm, I'm the same way. My process changes with every single book. And like, if you keep looking for the perfect process, the perfect software to use, the perfect outline method, you're going to get stuck and you're never going to get anything done.
3: Agreed. Yeah. The, the day you find your process is probably the day you retire. Right.
2: That's also the day you write oh, the perfect that's... book. Yeah. <laughs>
1: All right. Well, yeah. So I guess the the point is go out like Tom Brady. Uh, had, yeah. <laughs> had, to, had to get that. Had to get that reference in there. <laughs> I'm, I'm still
3: not sure if he's gone out yet. Yeah. <laughs> we'll we'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, we'll, Who's up next uh, week? There, JD. Next week we've got Jonathan Kellerman coming back. Um, number one New York Times bestseller. He's got I think forty or fifty uh, books out at this point. His latest is called City of the Dead and releases February eighth. Uh, really looking forward to this one. Awesome. Well, to our listeners, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com
1: and grab the free revision masterclass where you can see the storytelling process from beginning to end. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.